0: there was a a well-known Christian businessman by the name of R.G. Letourneau. He was well-known for his stewardship. He began to give more and more. God prospered him and gave more and more until toward the end of his life, he was giving away 90% of his income and living on 10%. He established a university in Texas and did some great things for God. He founded a great company. It's an earth-moving equipment, oil drilling equipment. He tells a story about one of his inventions. And that invention was an earth-moving equipment that was unique at the time. And he called it the G-model. And he said one of his salespeople, one salesman, he is renowned for giving glib answers. Somebody walked up to him And he said, what does the G stands for? And the man, without a moment's hesitation, he said, the G stands for gossip. Because gossip, like this machine, moves a lot of dirt and moves it fast. (laughs) Oh, we got to the power of the tongue today. Because generally speaking, a lot of people focus on the power of the tongue and what you say with your lips and all that stuff, and they, they say that uh, what you say with your tongue will happen. But really what James is focusing on, mostly, is the power that helps us to tame and discipline the tongue. That's what he was concerned with. But why is this controlling of the tongue is the sixth evidence of saving faith? We literally halfway through a series of 12 messages from the epistle of James, about 12 evidence of saving faith in our lives. And this is number six. And I want to tell you at the outset that of all the 12, the ones we already saw, the ones we will be seeing, I am conscious of this one the most. I am conscious of this one the most because… I have made my fair share of blunders. I have said and written many things that I wish I can take back, but alas, I can't. That is why now I am constantly, constantly, not just a daily basis, several times throughout the day, I'm asking the Holy Spirit of God to control not just my tongue and my lips, but to control my thoughts and at no more time that this is important than when I preach and teach and give advice. Sometimes I'm about called upon to give, you know, speak a word, and I send one of those telegraphic prayers to the Lord. And same thing control what I'm saying, control what I'm thinking. But this is really an important message to those who are involved in teaching and preaching. Now, there's an application for all of us, as I'm going to show you, but specifically he's speaking to those who preach and teach, and my goodness, if there is a message that many of us in the pulpits need to have, is this message of controlling our tongue. Here's what he says, chapter 3, verse 1, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers. Why? He gives us the answer. (laughs) We who teach, that is publicly or privately, will be judged strictly. There's a whole set of criterion by which God is going to judge those of us who teach and preach. Those who teach or preach or lead in any way, and that, by the way, includes parents, because God placed you in your home to be a leader, to lead your children, to lead your family. We must always approach that leadership role, that call of God, whether it be in the home or the church or in the business or whatever it might be, we must approach this with a sense of awe. Awe. And I tell you the reason, every time I stand up here, my knees knock, and I'm so glad you can't see them. And even though I've been 40 plus years in the ministry, they still knock every time I get up to speak. Why? Because it's very simple. The Bible is filled with examples of those who have ministered or served out of selfish ambitions, and they paid a consequence. They did not have to wait for eternity to be judged. They were judged right on the spot. Take, for example, Moses' sister, Miriam, his brother Aaron. They, out of selfish ambition, criticized Moses and his leadership by that saying, we are better leaders than he is, and they were struck with leprosy. Gehaziah was the number two man to the prophet Elisha. And he was filled with selfish ambitions and with greed, and he went after the wealth of General Naaman, who came from Syria. And he was struck with leprosy. In Matthew chapter 20, where the mother of the Zebedee brothers, and she said, have one on the right, one on the left. I mean, she thought it was going to be a great earthly kingdom, and she wanted to have the place of honor and a place of power. And Jesus rebuked her. In Acts chapter 5, the Bible tells us about a couple who were filled with selfish ambitions, and they dropped dead right in the church. (laughs) And then in Acts chapter 8, it tells us about Simon the magician, who supposedly came to Christ listening to the apostles, and then he wanted to buy the power of the Holy Spirit so that he can perform miracles like they were. And Peter literally rebuked him and condemned him selfish ambitions are too common in the church these words should be sobering to every one of us whether we speak in public or lead by example Amen. having said that i believe the bible teaches something called holy ambition holy ambition is very different from selfish ambition holy ambition is something that god places in our hearts. Let me tell you the example of that holy ambition. Holy ambition is for servanthood, not lordship and lording it over people. Holy ambition is for self-giving, not self-gratifying. Holy ambition is for edifying others, not ourselves. Holy ambition is for being a conduit of God in serving and ministering, not exploiting God's people. Why? Because words have power, according to James. The tongue has power. In fact, verse 2, James basically said that we all, every one of us, have some issues in our lives. That's why we put it today. That we all have some issues that we're working on. I know some issues I have been working on all my Christian life. Still working on them. And he said, yes, every one of us does. Bring him constantly under submission of the Holy Spirit. Constantly bring him under the blood of Jesus Christ. Constantly trying to be surrendered to him so that he may empower me to overcome. Because we have not reached perfection yet. We will one day when we get to heaven. The process of sanctification. It's day by day becoming like Christ. But James said the uncontrolled tongue is an indication of an undisciplined life. That a disciplined tongue is an indication of a consecrated life or a life that is in the process of being sanctified. In Matthew 12 37, here's what Jesus said listen carefully. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you'll be condemned. Jesus is talking specifically about salvation. I remember a guy not long ago said to me, I don't want all this stuff about Jesus. What has he done? He basically, with his own words, he condemned himself. Nobody condemned him. He condemned himself. That's what Jesus is saying, and he is condemned unless he repents. What you and I say with our mouths is very important. In fact, I can tell you that I personally pray Psalm 141, 3, several times a day. Not just once, several times a day. Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord, keep watch over the door of my lips. I do this, whether I'm speaking to a large group or a small group, or I'm speaking to one person, giving advice. That's my telegraphic prayer, <laughs> And James here is very anxious for us to understand the power of the tongue. Because there was an oral society, everything was transmitted by the tongue. But I would have to, and I don't think I'm doing violation to the text, We have to say written words. Because, oh my goodness, I have written some words (laughs) that I equally wish that I could take back. But I do apologize when I'm under conviction. And in order to press this point home, he uses several metaphors about the tongue. He said, the tongue is like the bit in the horse's mouth. It's a small thing in comparison to the horse. It's like the rudder in a ship. Remember back then, all their ships were wind-driven. They were sail ships. Both the rudder and the bit are small implements in comparison to the object that they guide or lead or drive. He said, just like the bit moves the horse to where you want it to go, right or left, just as the rudder moves the ship, so is the tongue. Moves a person. What is James saying? Listen carefully, please. He is saying that the words of our mouth can spew out hate or words of love that we can use it to curse and cause affliction, or we can bring words of healing. We can use it to share the love of Christ with someone, or we can use it to turn somebody off the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, I know I'm safe in saying that this is the most common sin among Christians. An untamed tongue But James is not even finished yet with these metaphors. He's piling them one after another. Why? To intensify the image of the destructive power that can be for the tongue. Verse 5. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. I think we all have seen out west in California, and thousands and thousands and thousands of acres that literally charred, burned, spark started it all. One spark. When I got to Australia, it was winter time, and I remember my friends and even my wonderful father-in-law, and they would always talk about the bushfire. Now, what's the bush? What's fireism? (laughs) It took them a long time to explain it to me, but it really did not make sense until summer came. And I saw with those two eyes what a bushfire can do. How destructive, how disastrous, how people stay up all night to protect their houses from bushfire. And it all starts with a spark, just a spark. Verse 5, what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark it moves and it leaves nothing in its wake all charred rubble and ashes that's all you see when the bushfire is over James is not exaggerating here he really is not he is saying an untamed tongue that uncontrolled tongue undisciplined spiritually speaking tongue can be like that spark that ignites a bushfire, a firestorm, that torching everything in its path. Before I get carried away, I want to summarize to you five ways in which a tongue can sit ablaze and things on fire. The first one, that the tongue can ignite the fire through gossip, through gossip. Oh, we excuse gossip as kind of one of those minor things and… and um, Harmless pastime. But Romans chapter 1, verse 29, the Apostle Paul lists gossip along with the list of many evils, including malice and strife and, and deceit and even murder. It's in the list. In 1 Timothy 5, 13, Paul said idlers, gossipers, and busybodies are dangerous for a church. Listen to me. Our lower nature, our lower nature, the old nature that has not been sanctified yet, we love this stuff, and we love to spread it, move it out. <laughs> Why do our lower nature love this stuff? Because it makes us feel important. It really does. It makes us feel that we are in the know. It, it makes us feel puffed up. We know something. <laughs> Here's how we go about it. You know, I don't know all the details about such or such. Uh, I don't really have all the facts uh, about such or such. I don't know whether it's true or not, but rumor has it. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Rumor has it. Doesn't matter who gets hurt in the process. Rumor has it. If you've ever been a victim to malicious gossip, you'll understand exactly what James is saying here. I want you to hear me right. The best way to neutralize gossip is to stop it in its tracks. In Matthew 18, 15 to 20, the Lord Jesus gives us the manual. It is the manual of how to go about in order to stop gossip dead in its tracks. The second thing, the tongue can ignite a fire of profanity and obscenity. Ephesians 4.29 and following, Paul said, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Any unwholesome talk. Somebody said, Michael, we don't understand. He or she provoked me to it. You don't understand. Uh, He or she drove me to it. Nobody can force you to do anything you don't want to do. God gave us the power of the tongue for one reason, and that's to build one another up, to communicate grace to one another, uplift one another. The third thing the tongue can ignite a fire through utterance of lies or insinuations. What mechanism did Satan use in order to cause Adam and Eve to fall in the Garden of Eden? lie. He used a lie. That's the mechanism he used. It was a lie. And knowingly or unknowingly, when people tell lies, they can destroy lives, they can destroy families, and they can destroy churches. Lying is not only prohibited in the ninth commandment, but if you listen to Proverbs 6.16 says, listen carefully. There are six things the Lord hates, sevens that are detestable to him, haughty eyes and lying tongue, a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. You say, what's an insinuation? What's an innuendo? They are equally perverse as lying. Listen carefully. It is an indirect remark that intends to suggest something that is disparaging something that is derogatory about someone. It is planting of a destructive idea without coming out and stating it plainly. Here's what the scientists call it. They call insinuation a passive, aggressive, verbal violence. I mean, I really well, what does it mean for a simple guy like me? Listen carefully, I'm going to tell you. It means that an individual tries to hurt another, that's aggressive, yet without being caught in so doing. That's passive. That's the passive part. Listen to me. That does not mean, this is very important, that we should not speak the truth about issues and about people. You heard me enough. I talk about false teachers all the time. I mean, there is nothing wrong speaking the truth, warning people if we know the facts. The fourth thing the tongue ignites a fire is by magnifying the faults of others. There are some people who really think, they genuinely think, that they can build themselves up by putting somebody down. Actually, it backfires every time. Trust me. In all criticism... And I know probably every one of us been a recipient of some of those at some point. Your colleague at work, friend in business, somebody somewhere criticized you, home, member of the family. But I want to tell you that in all criticism, there is an unmistakable assumption. (laughs) Do you know what it is? Some of you probably guessed it. I could do a better job than that person that I'm criticizing can. It's just an assumption. How do you use my tongue for righteousness? Is to use it to build up others. Build them up. Build them up. Those who have saving faith show the evidence of it by encouraging people, lifting people up, motivating them. Number five... The tongue ignites a fire not only by words are spoken, but the way the tone of those words are uttered. Now that's important. The tone of voice can either intensify our words or cancel out their meaning altogether. And beloved, let me tell you something. I catch myself doing that a lot. <laughs> I catch myself many times using the wrong tone, and then I stop at the moment and I say, let me, let me rephrase that. I'm not really rephrasing it. I'm just changing the tone <laughs> because I immediately recognize that that tone was not very good, was not honoring to God, and I change it immediately. Suppose I, I meet somebody and I said, I am so pleased to meet you. What am I communicating? I'm communicating that I'm actually I'm very glad, I'm genuinely glad to be in their presence, Right? It's no-brainer, right? But suppose I said the same words, same words, with an expressionless tone in my voice. I'm glad to meet you. Or suppose I do that with a sour look on my face like I've been baptized in vinegar. I'm pleased to meet you. Or even I say that without looking at the person. Yeah, I'm pleased to meet you. Or I say that as I'm rushing to leave the church. Which is my temptation. (laughs) Hide after I preach. Is that person going to get the same impression that I'm really glad to be in their presence? No, of course not. To be truly uplifting to people may not come naturally, but it comes supernaturally. Hear me right, please. When we speak to others, the tone we use can make all the difference in the world, whether we build them up or we're putting them down. In fact, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche once observed, he said the following in our quote, he said, we often refuse to accept an idea merely because the tone of voice in which it has been expressed is unsympathetic to us. What did James really want us? What do you and I need to take away from this? Listen carefully as I come to the end here. Because the greatest question that James is really raising is not so much the power, although he talks a lot about the power of the tongue, but is about the power that can tame the tongue, the power that can spiritually discipline the tongue as evidence of faith. How can we discipline the tongue? Oh, my goodness. If anything like me, <laughs> you say, right, well, that's, that's hard. Yes, but it's not impossible. Nothing is impossible with God. One thing I can tell you for sure is that growing in Christ every day helps. (laughs) It really does. I'm so glad you all did not know me when I was new in the ministry, when I had just been newly ordained. My goodness, I knew everything about everything, and I was not bashful about letting people know it whether they want it or not. <laughs> but I thank God that it's not the case. And I'll tell people, that when they say, what's sanctification? What does that mean? And you can look back in your life, 10 years ago, 5 years ago, whatever, however old you are, however long you've been walking with God, and you say, yes, I have grown in Christ. I have had power to overcome things that I know by nature would have got me down. That's what sanctification is all about question. Can I simply choose to control my tongue? Can I do it? Can my sheer willpower put an end to any of these bad habits that we talked about here? The five things, whether it be gossip, or swearing and lying, or or fault finding, or causing hurt, or division, whatever it is. Can we self-will it? You know what James' answer would be? No. No, you can't. Look at verse 7. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and are being tamed. Verse 8. But no man can tame the tongue. This is downright depressing. It is depressing. But listen, it gets worse. It really does. It gets worse. The tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Even now, with all of our advanced science and technology, even now with all, well, we can send a man to the moon, or we can send a ship to Mars and control it from the earth, and all of that stuff, we still can't control the tongue. Do you know why? Because we can't control the heart. That's why. And that's why our words are one moment praising God. And another moment, we're doing things that dishonoring to God's Word. So, James' conclusion is this. The problem is not so much the tongue, although he focused on it. It's the spring. It's the well. And if the spring is taken care of, whether it's got sweet water or poison water, is going to show up in the tongue. And that's what he's trying to tell us here. And so James' conclusion, take care of the problem, the root of it, the spring, the heart, the tongue will take care of itself. And that is why he goes on to say, my brothers, this should not be. What is he saying? He is saying, What you cannot do, the Holy Spirit can do in you. What you cannot control, the Holy Spirit can control within you. What you cannot tame, the Holy Spirit can tame for you. He can control the heart, and when the heart is under His submission, when the heart is yielded to Him, the tongue will praise God, will bless people, will encourage people, will uplift people. And not just once or twice, but all day long. Beloved, I know many of you have experienced the power of the Holy Spirit working in you, as I have in areas that by nature we could not change. He changed in us. How does the Holy Spirit empower us to overcome lots of stuff? I will never understand until I get to heaven, but he does. But I said in the last message that if I need the surgery, if I, and, and I place myself in the trustworthiness of a surgeon and lay myself bare at that table, be cut on, how much more, how much more should I lay myself bare on the table of the chief surgeon? who loves us so, who never hurts us, He only does whatever He does, even it may appear as hurt, but it's for good, for the good. Trust Him to examine your life on a daily basis and transform your life because he can and He will. When you give Him control of your heart, the tongue is going to follow and the tongue is going to be filled with praise and with joy, with affirmation, with encouragement, with uplifting words and with thanksgiving. Yes, God. Yes. Our God, before whom all hearts are open, knows exactly where you are and what's going on in your life and whether those areas that his presence need to come and take over complete control. Not just today after being convicted by the message of the Word of God. No, I'm talking about moment by moment, day by day, week by week, for the rest of life. Only you know. Father, you know our hearts. We don't know each other's hearts. We really don't, Lord. They don't know my heart. I don't know their hearts. But you do. And that's a comfort. <laughs> And so we ask in the name of Jesus, whatever it is, whatever it is, I pray that as you have done it in many, many, many lives, you do it today. But Father, that's not just for so we can be selfishly happy, or, but so that we can be better servants of yours, so that we would better extenders of the kingdom of God, so that we be better witnesses for you. For, Father, it is your kingdom, it's your glory, it's your righteousness that we seek above all else. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Amen and amen and amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.